Paranormal Podcast. Um, we have had an amazing last two weeks, super productive, at least for work life. Family life has been awesome too. So in general, just a great last two weeks. I meant to be back last week, but we had some illness, so it just was not a thing. But this week is going to be fun, and especially fun if you are from the San Antonio, Austin area, and you are familiar with a city called Elmendorf. And I'm playing it real fast and loose with the word city because it is very small. Um, it's been described as, you know, I think a lot of small towns are described this way, um, where if you blink, you might miss it. So that is this, this city for sure. And our story, I mean, it's pretty larger than life. And I had never heard of it until recently. So I'm surprised that it's not bigger in the San Antonio lore. Because even its founder, Henry Elmendorf, was a mayor of San Antonio, so it should definitely loom larger than it does. But that is sort of where our story begins, and that is with Henry Elmendorf. He founded the city, or the town, in 1885, and Frank X. Ball was a resident. He had realized the potential of cotton pretty early on, and Elmendorf was cotton country, as you'll see if you take a drive down to Corpus Christi or Port Aransas. There is just tons of cotton just lying around, flying around, growing, of course. And by flying around, I mean literally. It's just all over the place. I really, really love it because it looks like snow, and we don't get a lot of snow around these parts, so it's kind of cool. But anyway... Frank noticed that there was just tons of cotton, tons of land to be had, and he borrowed some money for a cotton gin to process all of it. He then started to buy up struggling farms and processed enough cotton to have it not sold just in San Antonio, but all over the world. After that, he opened the town's main general store and sold anything that a small town might need, such as coffins, cloth, clothing, building materials, just really anything. It was a general store for general needs. The town was booming in the 1900s. They even had a railroad depot put in to encourage travelers to stop and spend their money at the town's restaurants and hotels. Frank and his wife Elizabeth were pillars of their small town, and they quickly became the richest and most prominent family in Elmendorf. And together, they had eight children, Joe, our subject today, was the second born, and unlike his siblings, who mostly took their places in small town governments and other kind of placid type jobs in that community, Joe, at 19 years old, joined the military to fight in World War I. He'd always liked guns and target practice, and he probably felt like this was a great way to put that talent to use. He also probably felt a patriotic urge to go, like many of his generation. The way his living relatives remember him, or at least his reputation in the family, uh, they remember his kindness. I referenced an article by Michael Hall for this episode in Texas Monthly, and it has an interview from his nephew Bucky Ball, where he recalls his uncle's shooting skills and his fondness for teaching other kids how to shoot. He also remembers that he was so kind that he paid for a poor Mexican couple to have their baby in a hospital. Others in the town don't remember it like that. 
Lawrence Lydeke remembers Joe Ball as an unkind man who'd shoot at you if you got too close or just in general pissed him off. He also remembers that he was just awful to the black people who worked for him, but one thing was clear. Once Joe came back from the war, where he saw action in the Western theater, he had changed. After his honorable discharge in 1919, Joe came back to a country that was just beginning its era of prohibition. And prohibition, for those of you who don't know, although if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you do, but nevertheless, here it is. Prohibition began in 1920 and ended in 1933. It was ushered in mostly by the religious right and women's political movements that sought to end family violence and political corruption, as well as addiction, by eliminating alcohol from the situations entirely. So alcohol was completely outlawed from 1920 uh, to 1933. And if anything, this gave rise to more violence and corruption in towns like Chicago and New York, but apparently also in tiny towns like Elmendorf. When Joe came back, he realized quickly that people would pay good prices for alcohol. So he became known for bootlegging gin, whiskey, and beer to the thirsty citizens of Elmendorf and San Antonio. At this time, he hired an assistant, Clifton Wheeler, a young black handyman that would do odd jobs for Joe and helped him in his business. His treatment of Clifton might be where he got the reputation for being cruel to the black population of Elmendorf. Stories abound of Joe shooting at the ground to force Clifton to do the jitterbug or other dances on command. The rumors around town were that Clifton was terrified of Joe, so much so that when he was called upon to do odd jobs, he would without a doubt. Once Prohibition ended in 1933, Joe opened a bar called The Sociable Inn. The bar was known for its pretty waitresses and its alligator pit in the back. Joe would hold shows for the patrons of the bar at the alligator pit, where he'd feed them live kittens and puppies for the amusement of the crowd. There were wild stories about drunken orgies and other types of wild parties where the crowd would urge Joe on in these feedings every Saturday night. Due to the railroad depot being in town, a lot of people passed through, and a lot of the waitresses that worked in Joe's bar were passing on to bigger and better things. But they did some quick work there just to get some cash to fund their traveling. Some of them stayed on for longer because they quickly got involved with Joe. Minnie Goddard was from Seguin, Texas, which is another small town outside of San Antonio and has been mentioned on this podcast before in the Emma Volker episode. Minnie was a hard-drinking, crude, and loud woman who had no fear of the rowdy patrons of the sociable inn, or apparently of the alligators of the sociable inn. She was strongly disliked in the small town, but the only person that mattered to her, Joe, liked her so much that she ended up taking on more responsibilities at the bar and ran it right beside him. Big Minnie, as she was called, ran the bar with Joe and Clifton, and it seemed like the couple were really happy together. But Joe had a thing for pretty waitresses, and he hired on a woman named Dolores Goodwin, who also had a nickname, like Big Minnie, and hers was Buddy. The 42-year-old Joe quickly struck up an affair with Buddy. 
a 27-year-old brunette who had pretty eyes and a quick wit. She and Joe were in love, but Minnie was still in the picture, and she was no fool. She quickly discovered that the two were sleeping together, and after confronting Joe and letting anyone who'd listen know how she felt about Buddy, she disappeared. Joe told everyone in town, including Buddy, that she left to have her, and I'm not even going to say it, it's a racial slur against black people. He said that she went off to have her racial slur baby in a hospital in Corpus Christi. The fact that she left all of her clothes and belongings behind was left out of the story. After that, Joe hired another waitress, Hazel Brown, who was from McDade, Texas, and also had a nickname, as all of them did, I suppose, um, Shotzi. And Shotzi was good friends with both Buddy and Joe. She was a beautiful brunette with big brown eyes that just seems to seem to stare right through you. And she had, by all reports, a very sweet disposition. And you can find the picture of both of these women, Buddy and Hazel, on the article that I referenced. And that was the one by Michael Hall for Texas Monthly Magazine. I think the article was written in 2002. In September of 1937, Buddy and Joe got married. And Buddy must have been nervous that Minnie would come back after her clandestine trip to Corpus Christi. Because once they were married, Joe told her the truth. He'd murdered Minnie at the beach to make sure she didn't make any trouble for them. She told her best friend, Shotzi, about the incident, and they agreed to tell no one else. Buddy and Joe had a short, volatile relationship that one night had Joe throwing a bottle of beer at her face, which resulted in her having a scar running from her eye to the back of her neck. In January of 1938, Buddy lost her left arm. There were rumors around the town that Joe had tortured Buddy by cutting it off and feeding it to his alligators. In truth, she had lost it in a car accident, but it does speak to the town's um, idea of Joe and what he was doing at the bar. In April of 1938, Buddy disappeared from the picture. Joe, wasting no time, started dating Shotzi, who apparently wasn't afraid of him, even after two of his last lovers had either gone missing or been murdered. Maybe she thought that Buddy was just lying or trying to make the case to leave Joe by telling everybody how awful he was and making up the story uh, that he had murdered Minnie. Who knows? By September, the doe-eyed Shotzi had disappeared too. Given that rumors had already been swirling of the dirty dealings and missing waitresses of the sociable inn, people were extremely suspicious of Joe Ball by this point. And Joe must have caught on, because he did some cleaning around his barn. He dropped off a barrel that just smelled awful at his sister's barn, and people took notice of this in particular. An older man witnessed him dropping off the barrel and went to go check it out. He found it covered in flies and smelling like something was dead inside. He reported this to Bear County Deputy Sheriff John Gray. And while Gray was very familiar with the Ball family, enough had gone down at the Sociable Inn to warrant a serious investigation. Gray took a deputy with him to ask Joe some questions around noon the next day to find out what had really happened to the waitresses. But Joe claimed to know nothing and said that as far as he was concerned, the women who'd gone missing were prostitutes, and they moved on quickly. 
So quick, in fact, that they nearly always left something behind in the way of clothing and belongings. I mean, okay, so one of the so-called prostitutes was his wife. I mean, how does he explain that? How does that figure? I don't know. Anyway, Gray and the deputy then went to investigate the barrel after some time, but in a surprise to no one, it was gone. After interviewing Joe's sister, she confirmed that it had definitely been there, but Joe had picked it up earlier that day. This this was all too much. And the men returned to Joe's bar to tell him that they were going to take him to San Antonio for further questioning. I imagine that the prostitute-slash-wife situation must have been on their minds. Joe asked John Gray if he could go into the bar and have a beer before closing up and just going with them. Of course, this being 1938, they said, sure, why not? As they all headed into the bar, Joe pulled out a 45 caliber pistol from under the counter and pointed it towards Gray and his deputy, John Clevenhagen. Just as they yelled, don't, and began to reach for their guns, Joe turned the gun around and shot himself in the heart. Now, the stories do differ here. Some say that he did shoot himself in the heart, and others say that he shot himself in the head, but either way, he was dead. So no motive was really ever found, at least from Joe. Now, Clifton Wheeler, if you'll remember his assistant, that he would shoot at to get him to dance, which I thought was only a thing that Back to the Future 3 had in it, but apparently it's not. Um, He was present for the entire thing. So Clifton had a different story to tell. He said that the reason Shotzi disappeared was because she had found another man. He was a patron of the bar, and he had a good job and a home for her to make her own. So Joe got jealous and told her that she couldn't leave. And of course, she got upset and said, I'll leave if I want to. And if you don't want anybody to find out that you murdered Minnie, you'll let me go. All this came out during questioning that Clifton endured after deputies had searched the bar and found an axe covered with blood and hair and just random bits of raw, rotting meat in the alligator pit outside of Joe's bar. Clifton then told them that a 14-year-old black boy had also been murdered, but nobody has been found to prove that. Due to the high volume of missing people that had been recorded, around 22, actually, um, police surmised that at least a few of them had been fed to the five alligators. Clifton told them that not only did he know why Shotzi was murdered, He had helped Joe dismember her and bury her in the sandy banks of the San Antonio River. When police, led by Clifton, went to find her, a crowd of townspeople went with them. So, I don't know why people would do that. It's terrible. But newspapers at the time reported that the smell of decomposition was so bad that those onlookers started throwing up. And what do you expect This isn't some nice and dry archaeological dig, guys. This was a recently killed woman that had been dismembered near a river. It was never going to be a party. I I don't understand that, that impulse. They pulled Hazel Brown up out of the sand piece by piece. It was Hazel who'd been in the barrel at Joe's sister's barn. 
and Clifton had been forced at gunpoint to help him dismember her and burn her skull overnight, which he'd refused to do at first, but in the end did help hold her down while Joe dismembered her. Minnie's story at this point was still not known by the police, and Clifton let them in on that too. Clifton, Minnie, and Joe had packed up the car with whiskey, beer, and blankets to go to Ingleside, which is a beach town outside of Corpus Christi. Joe had told them that he wanted to have a day at the beach. They danced around on the water, and after a while, Joe told Minnie to take her clothes off. Wheeler disappeared, but before he did, he brought Joe and Minnie more whiskey. While doing this, he noticed that Joe had his pistol at his side. And before he could say anything, Joe distracted Minnie, and while she was looking away, he shot her in the head. Clifton asked Joe why he'd done this while he was helping him bury Minnie's body in the sand, and he said that, well, Minnie was pregnant and that he had to because he was seeing Buddy. So the police set up a large operation in Ingleside to find Minnie's body. And after a while, a large, after a large crowd, gathered, they did find her, corroborating Clifton Wheeler's story. A few days later, Buddy was found to be in San Diego with her sister, having left her husband. Some of the women who'd been claimed as missing were found in San Antonio, and others just not at all. This was an incredibly sensationalized story, and magazines and tabloids picked it up and changed the story to include the feeding of the women to his alligators. And while it's not a far-fetched idea to think that it could have happened, I mean, he fed live kittens and puppies to these alligators, it was just never proven. And after reading a few excerpts from newspapers like The Shamrock Texan and The Sweetwater Reporter, I found that stories vary quite a bit on how these murders happened, and alligators weren't mentioned in any of these reports, at least not as a method of disposal. Some even suggest that the man who found the barrel with Hazel's body wasn't one man at all, but two, John Gray and John Clevenhagen. This account from the Sweetwater Reporter said that it was two, the two of them who watched Joe Ball and Clifton, here reported as Clifford, load the barrel into Joe's truck after nightfall. This would make a lot more sense as to the timeline of the disposal of Hazel's body, because at first... It was said that they went to the sister to find out if the barrel had even been there and then went back to Joe's. But I guess it must have been the next day if they were watching the sister's barn and seeing Joe and Clifton take the barrel away. So that makes a lot more sense. It also makes more sense as to when they found the body, like how decomposed that it was. So that is that. Now, Buddy never said anything really bad outside of that he killed Minnie and Shotzi. Um, she never said anything bad really about her, her husband. She just said, you know, he was a nice guy and I don't think he would have fed the girls to the alligator, but I mean, he did kill them. So, you know, he's a nice guy, but I mean, he did, did kill his ex-girlfriend and then the girl he was cheating on her with, he also killed. So, you know, whatever. So if you're wondering, like many, what happened to the alligators, they went to the San Antonio Zoo and Clifton was tried for the murders, or at least as an accessory to the murders of Hazel Brown and Minnie Goddard, and he was convicted. 
and spent two years in jail. After that, no one reports having seen hide nor hair of him. He just disappears. So there's a lot of terrible stories that were published at this point, and a lot of the tabloids really just took that alligator thing and ran with it, even to the point where Joe's sister, whose barn the body was disposed of for a moment, um, had sued. She had even sued some of these tabloids, and um, I don't know if she ever won. There was no... There's no record of her having won or lost those suits, but nevertheless, that is the story of Joe Ball, the alligator man of Elmendorf, Texas. The Ball family has mostly remained in Elmendorf, and I believe you can find them there still today. But please follow me on my Instagram account, that is at Historical Paranormal, or follow me on Facebook. You can search my page. Same thing, the Historical Paranormal Podcast. All right, I hope you all have a lovely week. And again, if you have story ideas, please toss them my way on Instagram because on Facebook I may not answer. But I know I really do need to pay more attention to Facebook. It's just not a platform that I really enjoy. I don't know. I'm a fan of Instagram. So You guys reach out to me, comments, questions, whatnot, and outside of that, have a wonderful week. Bye!